I'm going to start in uh, Romans chapter 5 this morning. We've been teaching for the last several weeks uh, on the subject of righteousness. It's, uh, well, righteousness should be Christianity 101. It should be the most basic and foundational truth that we have knowledge of. But unfortunately, it seems that too much of the church doesn't have knowledge of it or doesn't accept the, what the Bible says about it to be true. And I, I understand that. I understand why that is. I'm sure we all do. Because we're oftentimes Christians are more conscious of their shortcomings and their failures than they are what Jesus has done for them. But there's nothing more important than what Jesus has done for us. Amen? I'm going to start in Romans chapter 5, verse 17. It says, For if or since... By one man's offense, talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden. For since by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now we know in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, the Bible tells us the creation account of when man was created. God said, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost We're apparently in conference. And God said, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness. One translation of that verse says it this way. That God made a duplicate of himself. Let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness. He's not just talking about appearance. He's talking about nature. Let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air. And everything that's on the earth. Now in Psalm 8. Verse 4 I believe it is. The angels. Hebrews. uh, The book of Hebrews. uh, Recounting this. uh, Part of the scripture. Says that the angels said. To one another. Or to the father at creation. Who is man that thou art mindful of him. And the son of man that thou visitest him. I like to think back on what things must have been like at the time that God created man. The angels, who of course have experienced a lot of things that happened before the earth was ever formed, they saw Lucifer fall from a place of authority. They saw him take a third of the angels with him. The devil must be pretty persuasive to take a third of the angels against in rebellion against God. I think we need to realize that. If he can persuade the angels who were serving at the throne of God to follow him in rebellion, he must be persuasive. I say that only because I think that's important for us to recognize so we give ourselves a break when we get persuaded to do the wrong thing. Nevertheless, the angels who have seen the fall of Satan, Lucifer, who became Satan, When God announces that he's going to make man, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness, the angels are flabbergasted. They say, what is this thing called man? Which means man hadn't existed before that time. What is this thing called man that you would make him a little lower than yourself? King James translation says a little lower than the angels, but the word angel there is the word Elohim. It's the word that's used for God in the first five chapters of Genesis. What is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that thou hast visited him? 
You made him a little lower than yourself and gave him dominion over all the works of your hands. We know that's how things started off. We know that Adam was made in the image and likeness of God. What does that mean? Made in the image and likeness of God has to mean that he had all the characteristics that we know of of God. If God is holy, then man had to be holy if he was a duplicate of himself. If God was righteous, and of course, thank God he is, then man had to be righteous. Now, I would imagine, or when I do imagine, what that was like. Adam was formed by the dust, from the dust of the earth, by the hand of God. And then God breathed in him, and, he's, and the Bible says he became a living soul. God breathed his own spirit into Adam. Adam now is a living soul. There's no growing up for Adam. One moment he is not, and the next moment he is. Now, wouldn't it be silly for Adam, as soon as he created, to look around, see the earth that God had made, and the intellect that God had must have placed in, in uh, Adam at the beginning is astounding when you consider it. <clears throat> Science tells us that we only use about 10% of our brains, brain's capacity. <clears throat> I think that's a high estimate for some. <clears throat> but Adam had 100% of his use, the use of his brain. The intellect that he had <clears throat> is almost incomprehensible. He was able to name the animals, all the living things, all the things that God had created on the earth. God said, what do you want to call that? And Adam had the intellect to operate in conjunction with God's plan and purpose. Wouldn't it have been silly for Adam to walk around saying, you know, I'm not worthy of this place. Wouldn't it have been silly for God to walk with Adam in the cool of the day and Adam say, you know, we got to quit doing this. I just don't feel right about this. No, he was born as a son of God, created as a son of God, with God's righteousness as the source of his life. He accepted it. He didn't have anything to do with it. He didn't pat himself on the back and say, wow, look what I've done, because he didn't do anything. He was born into the characteristics and the nature of God. But we know that he fell. We know that he was tempted of the devil persuaded to break the commandment of God. You remember God told him, you can eat of every fruit of the tree, trees of all the garden, except this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, he can't be talking about physical death because Adam didn't die physically that day. But he did die spiritually. Spiritual death is defined in its simplest terms as separation from God. He was separated instantly. He was separated from God. He no longer had God's nature. He no longer had God's righteousness. He no longer had God's holiness. Now, I think it's also important for us to realize God wasn't surprised by the appearance of spiritual death. It wasn't like Adam fell and God said, oh, wow, didn't think that was going to happen. Now man's spiritually dead. He's estranged from God. He's separated from God. And so what does God do? 
Does he stop and say, well, we're going to have to fix this some way or another. We weren't expecting this to happen. But now we've got to come up with a plan. No, God had a plan from the beginning. God knew what spiritual death was before he ever warned Adam away from it. He knew that there was only one thing, according to the world and the system that he established, there's only one thing that can fix the problem when man falls. And that's the shedding of precious and holy blood. The Bible says Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world. In other words, God's plan was for Jesus to provide himself a sacrifice before he ever made man, before Lucifer ever fell, before there was a heaven and an earth. So he came up and developed the plan for redemption where Jesus would go to the cross and shed his blood. But folks, I want you to understand something. I think this is something that, that, that is lost on us by and large, on the, lost on the church world. A redemption or a plan for a redemption that does not restore man to righteousness is worthless. A redemption that leaves man bound by feelings of guilt and condemnation is worthless. That means as far as experience goes, the redemption that most of the church world thinks is, is, is it. And all there is to it is worthless as far as God is concerned. Notice our text here in verse 17. Romans chapter 5 verse 17. We'll read it again. For if or since by one man's offense. That's Adam uh, disobeying God in the garden of Eden. Since by one man's offense death. Spiritual death reigned by the one. Much more. Much more. That means the plan of redemption is even greater in power. And greater in strength than the fall of man. Much more. They which receive the abundance of grace. And of the gift of righteousness. Shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> or we can say it this way. Here's what God is saying to us through the Apostle Paul. He's saying that the restoration of man through God's plan of redemption. Through the shed blood of Jesus. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. God's plan for redemption is to restore man to a place of reigning in life. Anything else, anything less than that, that outcome, reigning in life for you and for me, is not what God's planned. Did you hear that? Anything less than that is not God's plan of redemption according to his plan and purpose. It's an interesting thing that the Bible talks about things as already being accomplished. Things that man and Christians worldwide struggle with, God says is already done. See, for most people, they're trying to overcome sin. But turn the, turn the page to chapter 6 of Romans... And see what the Bible already says about that. 
Notice verse 14. Well, we'll start in verse 13. It says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For, verse 14, for or because, sin shall not have dominion over you. Paul is not saying that. We hope it doesn't. But that must be the way that most Christians read that. We hope sin doesn't have dominion over us because we're trying to be righteous. Righteousness is a gift. The Bible says Christ has made unto you wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. There's no one day we might be righteous. The Bible says you are. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I just feel so unworthy. That's why he had to make it a gift. And nowhere does the Bible ever tell you that you can grow and mature into the place where you don't feel unworthy. Check, check. There we go. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Mark. Okay, where was I? Yeah, I know. I was just checking. The truth is we're never more righteous than we are at the moment that we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Nowhere does the Bible talk about growing in righteousness. You can grow in the knowledge of it. But righteousness does not grow. Righteousness is a gift. Well, now I can't get the thing back on my pocket. We'll try it this way. They that receive the abundance of grace, which means everything Jesus provided for us, and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life as by one Jesus Christ. It's a gift. The Bible talks about justification. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to me. Um, look back to chapter 4, Romans chapter 4 again. I want you to see the last verse of the chapter. It tells us about Abraham's example of faith. And how that it was counted to him for righteousness. King James says imputed. It's an accounting term. It means God credited it to him for righteousness. Abraham wasn't declared righteous before God because he kept the law. Or performed some duties. 
He was counted righteous before God because he accepted what God said. He believed in what God said. Then in chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, verse 24, it says, But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, it's counted unto us as righteousness too, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. The word for, F-O-R, is, is, in, uh, is a poor translation because this is an, an adjective or an adverb or whatever English majors would tell us. But the word is descriptive of, of a point in time, not a reason why. So when it says Jesus was delivered for our offenses and raised for our justification, it literally means raised when we were justified. So a price had to be paid. The wages of sin is death. A price had to be paid for Adam's sin that brought death upon spiritual death upon all of mankind. A price had to be paid. Now, it's also interesting to me that God, the Bible says God had to do it in such a way. Chapter 3 of Romans in verse 26 says that God declared his righteousness in such a way that he might be just. And the justifier of them that believed on him. In other words, God couldn't just say, well, we're going to change the plan here a little bit. I don't really want Jesus to suffer the entirety of man's penalty. I love my son so much that I don't want to see him suffer. So we're just going to cut the corner. We're just going to say that sin is laid on Jesus. And then he can do the suffering on the cross. And then I can raise him from the dead three days later. And we'll just count that as done. God had to do it in such a way that he could maintain his holiness. In other words, the real price for man's sin, a specific punishment, a specific penalty had to be paid. And God couldn't stop it one second short. That's what verse 24 means. Jesus was raised again when we were justified. There was a specific moment in time where the price was justifiably paid, righteously paid. And then the Bible says that that's when Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, one of the interesting things about righteousness, one of the things that really helped me in seeing these things some years ago was when I realized, and I don't know why I didn't accept it to begin with. I'd known it all along. But there's a difference in knowing something because you read it in the word and knowing something because it's true on the inside of you. And I guess prior to this point, it wasn't really real on the inside of me. But I recognized and finally accepted what the Bible says about Jesus being born again. That was one of the hardest hurdles for me to jump. But if Jesus was made sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If Jesus became sin, and I think we confuse ourselves sometimes by the idea of sin being laid on Jesus, being something other than Jesus' change of nature. 
What I mean by that is simply this. When Adam disobeyed God, his nature changed. He died spiritually. Well, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So somebody is going to have to die spiritually. Somebody with holy, righteous blood is going to have to die spiritually. That means be separated from God. That means become sin itself and the nature of sin itself. Somebody had to do that. And folks, I know this is controversial in many parts of the church world. But if that's not what Jesus did, somebody still has to do it. Well, how does Jesus come back from spiritual death? We know on the cross he committed his, hand, he committed his spirit into the Lord's hands, his father's hands. Up until that time, he said, no man can take my life from me, but I can lay it down willingly, which he did. Last thing he said on the cross before he died was, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. That means it's not under his control anymore. Prior to that point in time, Jesus could walk out of trouble anyway or any time, anyhow he wanted to. There were times where the Jews tried to kill him. One time they wanted to throw him off of a cliff. The Bible says he just passed through the midst of them. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means he walked away and they didn't see him. Or he walked away and they couldn't touch him. I'm not sure exactly how that worked. I just know that it did work. But when you get to the cross and the account that the Bible gives us, Jesus gives up his right to his own life for our sakes. He committed his spirit into the hands of God and he suffered the punishment for three days to pay the price for man's original sin. Psalm 88 gives us a little hint of what, what that was like. Speaking prophetically of Jesus in the, in the belly of the earth, in the pit of hell. Which it would have to be the place that he went. If Jesus died spiritually, he had to go to the place of the spiritually dead, did he not? That's another corner God can't cut. If he's going to be righteous in this work. So in the pit of hell, the Bible tells us in Psalm 88 that the waves of God's wrath, one after another, came upon Jesus. Jesus isn't sitting somewhere in paradise watching the clock, thinking, all right, well, I'm just going to stay here for three days, and then after that, it'll all be fine. Those three days were hell, literally. Literally. He's experiencing all the penalty, all the punishment for man's original sin. The wages of sin is death. The Bible talks about an eternal torment for those who die without Jesus. A fire that cannot be quenched. That had to be part of Jesus' suffering too. If he's paying the price for us. Now, Jesus is not in the belly of the earth. He's not in the pit of hell as a righteous man at that point. He's there because of the sin nature that's overtaken him. 
this change in his spiritual nature that occurred when he committed his spirit into the hands of God. But the Bible says, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, it says one of the things about Jesus that is absolutely true. And in, in Paul's day, the early days of the church, this wasn't an issue that was argued over like it is today. Paul wrote most of the, the, um, the information he did about righteousness to the Romans in the first Corinthians or to the church at Corinth and the church at Rome. He wrote to them, and his main theme or point to make about righteousness was that you can't earn it. It's by faith, not by law. Very few times does Paul try to establish the fact that we've been made righteous. That was accepted. That was a truth that was not argued over, apparently. It wasn't a controversial subject. So he makes the point about it being by faith through the grace of God. The gift of righteousness rather than what you and I do to earn it, which you can't. So Jesus in the place of the unrighteous dead is paying the price for you and me. He's operating as our substitute. But then the Bible says something glorious happened. The life of God comes back upon Jesus. He's justified in spirit. First Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. He's justified. That means made righteous. He's made righteous in spirit. Raised to sit on the right hand of God forevermore. As proof that we have access into heaven. Now what raised him up? What brought life back to Jesus? Romans 14, 9, I believe it is, says that Jesus both died, rose, and revived. We think of the resurrection as him rising from the dead. We think of that being where he picked up his body again on his way to the Father, as Hebrews 10 tells us, He offered his blood in the heavenly holy of holies and then was seated at the right hand of God. Well, that's true, all right. But what revived him to be able to do that? If God is operating justly, which he had to, then the total price for sin, man's sin, had to be paid. And that's what Jesus did. Therefore, it means that in some form, in some way, the Holy Spirit at that moment in time when man's price was paid had to come back upon Jesus and cause him to be reborn. His spiritual nature changed. Just like like happens with you and me. He died, he rose, and he revived. That's why the Bible tells us that we have the same life that Jesus had, has. That's why the Bible tells us that we're joint heirs with Christ, equals, because the same life 
that comes to us by the new birth, the work of the Holy Spirit, is what happened to Jesus. That that raised him from hell to the presence of God. Here's the point. Jesus could no more be unmade the righteousness of God than you or I. Let me say that again. Jesus can no more be unmade the righteousness of God than can you and I. That means the life that Jesus has sitting at the right hand of the Father is not the life that he had while he was here on the earth. That spirit was made sin. Paul made some interesting statements about this. And if you, if you read through what Paul wrote to the church, it seems that the way that he describes it indicates to me a progression or a growth in spirit about what belongs to us and how. Paul wrote, I am crucified with Christ. What does that mean? That means when Jesus died spiritually, so did you. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Jesus' life is your life. Jesus' life is your life. Jesus' righteousness, which is of God, not of himself, is the same righteousness that you have. For God made Jesus to be sin for you in your place. That you might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now when Nicodemus came to uh, Jesus under cover of darkness in John chapter 3. He made a simple statement. Trying to get to the source or looking for the source or, or wanting to have information about the source of Jesus' miracles. He said, Master, we know that, that God is with you. That you're come from God. Because nobody can do the miracles that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus says you must be born again. Now Jesus didn't change subjects. Nicodemus is focusing on the same thing that most of us do I think. He's focusing on the power of God. The miracle working power of God. And Jesus says it all comes down to being born again. Jesus didn't say, no, Nicodemus, you've got it all wrong. It's not about the miracles. He's telling him the the entry point. He's describing the entrance to the supernatural realm where miracles are done. He said, you must be born again. What does it mean to be born again? You must be made righteous. Romans 10, 10, 9 and 10 says... That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I don't think we put the right emphasis on righteousness. We mean the modern day church. I don't think the right emphasis is placed on righteousness in the teaching and church doctrines. 
Jesus was able to stand before his father in every circumstance and know that God heard him. Before Lazarus' tomb, he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me and that you hear me always. Why? How could Jesus know that God always hears him? Because he has the same righteous nature as his father. So do you. That means if we're thinking and or speaking anything other than my father hears me always, then you're not taking advantage of the redemptive work of Jesus. Jesus made another statement earlier in his ministry. He said, I always do those things that please my father. How could he say that? Because he wasn't led or motivated by his flesh. Now here's where the devil tries to bring condemnation. Yeah, Jesus did that. And he did that because he was the son of God. But you're not in the same category. You're not in the same class. You certainly don't have the same power. So you'll never be able to do that. And you know what? Part of that's right. Jesus had no experience with sin in his flesh. He was tempted of the devil just like we are in every point. Yet he was faithful to do what the Bible says and his, the, the will of God the Father. But he had no knowledge of good and evil in his body. And the Bible is pretty specific in saying that the things that we fall into, the wrongdoing that we fall into, is not because there's a defect in our spirits. It's not because there's a shortage of righteousness imparted from God to you and me. But it's because of that experience with sin that we have knowledge of in our flesh. Jesus didn't have that. He didn't have that. So what does that mean? That means Jesus operating on the same heart desire as you and I do. Was able to keep himself pure. Free from sin. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 8. Paul, after describing his own conflict and struggle with sin in chapter 7, concludes in chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation. He does not say there's no condemnation unless you really mess up. Which was always interpreted as there's no condemnation for the other guy, but there is for me. He said, there is no condemnation. There is therefore now, because of the work of Jesus, because of the gift of righteousness, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, you're not reading the rest of the verse. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. See, that's my problem. I catch myself walking after the flesh and not after the spirit. Well, you need to do some research on this. Don't take my word for it. Study it out for yourselves. You'll find it in the oldest manuscripts. That phrase, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, doesn't belong in verse 1. It's not there. It's in verse 4. Now, why do we have it in the King James translation as well as, as many others? Well, I don't know for sure, and I don't know that anybody knows for sure. But I do know this. I know translations depend on the understanding of the translators. 
Any translation, every translation is based on two things. The translator's knowledge or understanding of the language and their knowledge or understanding of the character and the nature of God. This must have been something, verse 1 of Romans chapter 8, must have been something the translators just could not accept. So they made it conditional. But that's not the way it's originally written. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, period. Now let me, let me show you how this works. Verse 2, 4, because, here's why there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. He contrasts two spiritual laws. He says there's a law of sin and death. We know about that one. We know of that one because of our own shortcomings. We know of that one because of the experience of sin that we have in our bodies. We know about that one. But he says there's a greater law. There's a greater spiritual law. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. If the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus was not greater and more powerful than the law of sin and death, then it couldn't free you. It'd be impossible. So the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, how does that come? It comes by making Jesus the Lord of your life by accepting him into your heart as your savior. That law is greater than the law of sin and death. That law is greater. That law that has already worked in you as a child of God is greater than the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is greater than the law of sin and death, which is the law that holds the church in, uh, that holds the world in bondage. So the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is greater than the spiritual laws that govern this world. That's why Jesus could walk on the water. That's why he could multiply loaves and fishes to feed the thousands. That's why Jesus was the master of this natural realm. Because the law of the spirit of life that was in him when he was here on the earth and is available to us now because of his resurrection and new birth. Being born again from the dead. Is accessible for us. That has to be what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 5. Those that receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is greater than any law of sin and death. Now folks, I would submit to you that it's because of our experience with the law of sin and death that we feel unworthy. What should we do about that? Realize that that's an inferior law. No wonder John wrote to the church, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And again, folks, let me go back to my original point. Any plan of redemption that does not restore man to righteousness and therefore dominion is worthless. It was God's whole purpose for sending Jesus to reestablish his nature, his righteousness, his holiness in you and me. So that man, his man, righteous man, could have dominion on the earth. There's, no, there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Please notice that God said you're already free from that. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, what if we keep falling into sin? Doesn't change spiritual law. Now I'm going to use a what might be a poor example here, but I think you'll get the point. How many times do we see somebody in the public arena, whether it's celebrities or it's politicians or whoever it might be, that does something just stupid, just incredibly stupid. They say something incredibly stupid. They do something incredibly stupid. And then they come back and say, that's not me. I made a mistake, but that's not me. Now, granted, most of the ones that are telling us that are just blowing smoke at us because that really is who they are. But even the world understands the difference between what you do and who you are. Even the unsaved recognize the difference between what you do and who you are. The church is mastered in this principle by singing songs about their unworthiness. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's not what the Bible says you are. You were a sinner, but you were saved by grace. So you're not a sinner anymore. Yeah, but what if I keep sinning? The Bible says that you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now somebody's got to be lying. Either God's lying when he says you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Or your feelings are lying to you. Trying to make you think you're unworthy. Which one is it? Paul said it this way. He said, let God be true and every man a liar. That every man being a liar is you. If you're going by your feelings concerning your relationship with God. Something's got to be lying. I'm going to stick with God. Let's keep reading. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Verse 3, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, as a substitute for sin in other words, condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, but there is condemnation. What's their condemnation unto? The sin that's in your flesh. God's condemned that, not you. God condemned the sin in your flesh that the devil uses to take you off track. That the righteousness of God... Verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. There's that phrase that they put in verse 1. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Yeah, Pastor Mike, that's my problem. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enemy, the enemy of God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. 
The devil uses that verse of scripture and these surrounding verses to bring condemnation on the very ones that the Bible says there's no condemnation unto. Because we all get stuck there. Yeah, I'm trying to be in the spirit. I'm trying to walk in the spirit. I'm trying to do the right thing. But my flesh is having a problem. Remember, that's what Paul said his issue was in chapter 7. The things that I, the man on the inside, wants to do are not the things my body winds up doing. The things my body winds up doing are the things that the man on the inside despises. Yet I seem powerless to change it. So that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice verse 9. But you are not in the flesh. In other words, he's saying, I'm not talking about you. Because there's no condemnation to you. You're in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The greater power, the greater spiritual law has set you free from the lesser spiritual law. The greater power in the work, finished work of Jesus is, greater, is a greater power and is greater than the law of sin and death that holds the world in bondage. Now, folks, I've got to tell you something. This principle is one of the major keys to growing spiritually. And living according to God's plan and purpose for your life. Notice he says, but you are not in the flesh. I guess he must be talking to the real spiritual ones in the group. No, he says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so, be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he's none of his. In other words, you're saying you're not in the flesh if you're born again. You're not in the flesh if you're born again. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So what the Bible is telling us is the, is the very thing that we see that made Jesus a victor and a master of his circumstances here on the earth. Jesus stood in the face of the storm and told it to be quiet. Jesus stood in the face of sickness and told it to leave. Jesus stood in the face of evil spirits and cast them out. And shut up while you come out. Why? Jesus said it was because of righteousness. He said, my father and I are one. What does that mean? It means he's got the same character and the nature of God. As God himself has. In other words, Jesus is operating the way that God created Adam to be in the Garden of Eden. And any redemptive plan that God could come up with that doesn't restore that is worthless. You're not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. Meaning there is no condemnation to you even when you stumble and fall. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and death. With that in mind, turn with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's start in verse 16. It says, wherefore, henceforth, from this point, know we no man after the flesh. 
Why? Because you're not in the flesh. If Jesus has made you a new creature in him, you're not in the flesh. Now, the devil may be whispering in your ear saying, well, you were pretty much in the flesh the other day. But according to Paul's own argument, that's not you. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh while he was here on the earth, yet now henceforth we know him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation, a new creature. What new creature is he talking about? He's talking about a rebirth rebirth of the human spirit, recreated child of God, to whom there is no condemnation. Yeah, but what if I mess up? Messing up doesn't bring you under condemnation. Messing up just simply means you let the man on the outside dominate the man on the inside. But that was the situation Paul was in. He said, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Thank God Jesus will. And that's when he says there is therefore now no condemnation. Because Jesus has delivered you from the body of this death. Or this body of death, whichever way you want to say it. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. I like another translation that says a new species of being. See, until Jesus rose again from the dead, there was no such thing and could be no such thing as a born-again believer. But you are one. That's what makes you a new species of being, a new creation. A righteous man born of God on the earth. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things, talking about spiritual things, we know natural things don't change when you get born again. Your hair color is the same. Your interests are the same and so forth. But spiritual things change. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. The word reconcile and reconciliation mean to exchange mutually. In other words, it means a complete swap. To be reconciled unto God, you have to become righteous. How do you become righteous? By making Jesus the Lord of your life. What does that do? Well, Ezekiel 36 says it takes away the old stony heart out of your flesh and puts a new spirit in you. And then God puts his spirit in your new spirit. So the ministry of reconciliation is the good news of Jesus that he made us that he was a substitute for you. He paid your penalty. He paid the price for your sin so that you can now walk in righteousness and be the righteousness of God. There was a mutual exchange. Man didn't hold anything back. He got everything that Jesus paid for. Jesus didn't hold anything back. He took the full punishment of sin upon himself. And there was a total swap. You trade your car in for a new car. You don't keep your old car. You drive away in the new one. There's a mutual exchange that's made. 
God took the old stony heart out of man and placed a new spirit within him. A mutual exchange, complete exchange. And notice what it says. As new creatures, God has reconciled us to himself. That's what Paul was talking about when he said, I'm crucified with Christ. My old spirit died when Jesus died. Now I'm a new man. I'm a new creature. I'm a new creation. I'm not the same person that I used to be. Even when my flesh acts like it used to act. Paul tells us that's not us. The real us, the man that's been changed, the man that's been born again, the man on the inside, he always wants to do the right thing. Well, since the man on the inside always wants to do the right thing, then that means we have just as much right to say, as Jesus said, I always do those things that please my father. Yeah, but how can you say you're doing things that please your father if you fall into sin? Well, I don't know about you, but every time I fall into sin, I confess it and repent. And that pleases my father. You mean, Pastor Mike, I'm supposed to confess all my sins? Well, first of all, you don't confess your sins to get born again. You confess Jesus as your Lord. You know, there's teaching in the body of Christ, and it's, it's so silly. But some people trying to get to the place where they feel righteous, I guess, teach that there's no place for confession of sin in the life of the believer. And they even come up with ideas saying that 1 John chapter 1 was written to the unsaved, not to the church. Well, if that's true, then the Holy Ghost doesn't know how to get people saved. Because if 1 John 1, 9, which says, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If that's written to the world, then the Holy Ghost must think that salvation is dependent on the confession of sins. But that's not what Romans 10, 9, and 10 says. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says if you'll confess Jesus as your heart, not confess your sins. Confess Jesus as your Lord. Then you'll be saved. And how could an unbeliever remember all the sins they've committed in their life anyway to confess them? Because if confession of sin is dependent on salvation, which it's not, thank God it's not. What if you missed one? How could you have a complete salvation if you omitted one of the sins that you committed in your life? And what about people that get saved later in life? It's not like they've been keeping a book. How could that be possible? It's not. See, confession of sin for the believer is easy. They happen one at a time. God didn't intend for you to stack them up. And as soon as you commit sin, as soon as you step outside of the law of love, you know it. And that's the place where God says, don't run away from me, come to me. God knows our frame. He knows we're made of dust. So he forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteous action. Not unrighteous nature. Our nature doesn't change back to unrighteousness when we stumble and fall. So this mutual exchange, he's reconciled us unto himself. That means 
Even as the Old Testament says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as God separated our sins from us. In other words, he's reconciled us unto himself. You've been reconciled unto God. Mutual exchange. Your death for his life. Your sin for his righteousness. It no longer exists. Your sin no longer exists. But it seems that many keep trying to bring those things up and remind God of how sorry they are. If God has removed your sin from you as far as the east is from the west, and you try to remind him of something you did wrong in your past, how's he supposed to remember that? Oh, Father, I'm just so sorry that I missed, missed it and missed you and failed. I'm just so sorry. God says, what are you talking about? Well, back there, before I got born again, or after I was born again, you know, where I did wrong. That's gone. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, old things pass away. That means the sin and the shame that the devil tries to bring on you, the condemnation he tries to bring on you, is over something that's dead. It's over something that's dead. And you don't have the power to revive it. Now you can revive it and keep it alive in your memory if you want to. But you can't revive it with God. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. The good news is the world has been reconciled to God through Jesus. All they have to do is make him their Lord, accept his sacrifice, accept the gift of righteousness. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling, here's that word again, reconciling the world unto himself. God's not against the world. He's not against the people in the world. He's not against the unsaved. He paid the same price for them through Jesus as he did for you and me. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing the trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Paul keeps getting stuck on that reconciliation thing. There's been a mutual exchange. Jesus' death for your, Jesus' death for you on your behalf so that you could have his life. He took your sin, your sickness, and instead gave you his life. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in, God's, in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Now he's talking about accepting what's true. Recognize that you're reconciled. Romans 5, 1 says it this way, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Therefore, being made righteous, that's what justified means, being made righteous by faith, not by works, not by you doing good things, being reconciled to God because of faith in what Jesus did. Now you have peace with God. God sent us a whole book to tell us he's not bad at us. He's on our side. Four, here's why we know. 
For he, God, has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. Who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Brother Hagin told a story. He's in a church somewhere and, and uh, he's teaching on righteousness. And there was a fellow in the front row that he was aware of. I think he was a deacon in the church. And the whole church considered this guy to be the best Christian in the bunch. I mean, he lived righteous. He lived a holy life. From all outward appearance, he did. Uh, he had committed himself to the Lord in every way. So Brother Hagin was trying to make a point. This guy was sitting on the front row. And so he walked by him and he said, Brother, I want to ask you a question. Are you righteous? The guy was caught off guard a little bit, and he said, well, I'm trying to be. And then Brother Hagin said, well, I don't, I don't mean to offend you, but can I ask you a question? He said, sure. He said, are you a man or a woman? You couldn't get away without asking that question today, could you? <laughs> this guy spit and sputtered a little bit, and he said, well, I, I'm a man. Brother Hagin said, how do you know? He spit and sputtered a little bit more and said, well, I was born that way. Brother Hagin said, and that's the only way you can become one. See, this guy's trying to be righteous. He's trying to live right. He's trying to live holy. But that's not what makes you righteous. The only way you can be made righteous is to be born that way. And that's exactly what Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about. You must be born again. Say this after me. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. When God looks at me, he sees me just as righteous as he sees Jesus. I have the same new birth that Jesus has. I have equal access to God that Jesus has. I am a joint heir. That means an equal in inheritance as Jesus because I'm righteous in his sight. My righteousness is of God, not of myself. Nothing I can do can change the fact that I've been born, born again as the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, if that ever dawns on us, we'll turn the world upside down. Every work, every miracle, every healing that Jesus performed was for one and one, only one reason, and that is because he was righteous. We can try to put it off on the power of God. He had power, Jesus had power we don't have and all that kind of stuff. But I want you to realize that's just an argument the devil's trying to distract you with. Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also. And even greater works shall you do because I go unto my Father. Why did he go unto the Father? To make you righteous. Jesus said, whatsoever you call for or require in my name, that will I do. Why? Because you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You're just as much a son of God as Jesus was here on the earth. You're just as much born of God as Jesus was born of God. You're just as much born again as Jesus was born again. Same life, same power, same spirit, same Holy Ghost. Not one bit of difference. 
Somebody once said in theological circles, they said, it seems that there's a parallel line between Jesus' life and our life. And folks, they missed it entirely. It's not a parallel line. It's the same line. Jesus is not one bit more righteous than you are. And I know that sounds sacrilegious to say it, doesn't it? But that's what the Bible says. The Bible says his life is your life. His righteousness is your power. His power is your power. His righteousness is your righteousness. What does that mean? That means there's no condemnation to you. Because you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. For the devil to try to tell us that that righteousness can be hindered by some action of ours in the flesh is to denounce the efficacy, the effectiveness, the power of the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. Your works have nothing to do with it. Righteousness is a gift. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you that you've made us righteous in your sight. Thank you that your righteousness is our righteousness. We're joint heirs, equal heirs in all things. All the things that were given to to Jesus by the Father. We're equal heirs with him in those. We recognize, Father, that the first thing Jesus said after he was raised from the dead and appeared to his disciples is all authority is given unto us in heaven and earth. Then he commissioned the disciples, those born-again ones, to use his authority here on the earth. Thank you, Father, that man's dominion has been restored in every way by the righteousness of God through the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you hear us when we pray every time just like you hear Jesus. Thank you that you honor our faith just like you honor Jesus' faith on the earth. Thank you, Father, that there's no difference, not a speck of difference between the life that we now have and the life Jesus has. You made us a duplicate of yourself, spirit beings, and you've commissioned unto us authority here in the earth. Satan, you're in trouble now. We're starting to see who we are. And as righteous children of God, Satan, we command you to take your hands off of our lives. Take your hands off of our bodies. Take your hands off the political scene of this nation. Take your hands off the social scene of this nation. Satan, take your hands off the financial scene of this nation. We declare that righteousness prevails. We declare that righteousness prevails in us and in our lives and in our country. Thank you, Lord, for exposing the plans of the enemy. Thank you, Lord. That whatever we call for in the name of Jesus, Jesus said he'd do it. Thank you that our authority in the name of Jesus is recognized in heaven and in earth and even in hell. 
Father, I ask that you would give unto us boldness to speak your word. By stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders would be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Stir in us, Father, a boldness to speak your word in the face of the enemy's attacks and in the face of circumstances that would deny and refute the truth of your word. No longer will we allow the devil to hinder us through feelings of unworthiness or through fear of any way, any type. For we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We love you, Father, and we thank you for the plan of redemption that has restored unto us righteousness and dominion in every respect. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Wouldn't it be nice if these things just sank into our hearts the first time that we heard them? Some of us have got some retraining to do. To train ourselves to think in a different way than we thought before. Many of us, many people have allowed the righteousness of God to be covered up or hindered by feelings of unworthiness or whatever the case might be. We've got to make a change on that. We've got to start looking at ourselves as the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, the devil will try to put you down when you do that, but remember the righteousness of God that has caused you to be born again or that you were born unto. It's not of you. It's a gift. So there's nothing for us to get puffed up about. We just accepted the gift. The devil will try to put you down when you claim that you're the righteousness of God in him. You're going to have to push through that. You're going to have to recognize that you are who the Bible says you are because the Bible says you're in. You can't be lying if you're saying what God says. And he says you're righteous. We've got some retraining to do in our thinking. Some renewing of the mind. But remember, they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. It's worth doing the work to get there. Amen. Amen. Well, let's all stand. Hallelujah. Let's just lift our hands before we go and thank God for his goodness. Thank him for what he's done in us. Thank him for revealing to us by the spirit of God in our hearts that we are the righteousness of God in him. We love you, Father. We thank you so much for your great plan of redemption, your worthy plan of redemption that has restored us to righteousness and restored us to dominion in every respect. We thank you, Father, for opening our eyes so that we can live up to who you've made us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Come on back and be with us tonight for Healing School if you can. Have a wonderful day.